I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Digby Jones, former Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI, and former UK Trade Minister. On this programme, we're talking business. In this episode... There are more than 5 million of them. They employ over 13 million people. They represent 90% of all the businesses in our country. And they provide £1.6 trillion of our income as a country every year. Welcome to the world of small business. Coming up, we travel to the Outer Hebrides to speak to a small business that uses artisan makers in their homes to produce beautiful tweed, which sells round the world. We speak to a furniture maker in the Northeast who sends his sofas to Paris and New York. And we'll talk about the really little businesses, the micro businesses employing just one or two people each with a company making panniers for bicycles in trendy East London. Welcome to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones. I'm joined today by James Sibley. He's the Head of International Affairs at the Federation of Small Business. And when I was at the CBI, I came to understand just what important work they do with this incredibly wide and disparate group in our economy. And they were so helpful to me as we all of us carried the flag for British business. The FSB has some 200,000 members and every single one of them is a mighty business in its own right. James, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Tell me, what's the main challenge that a small business has when they're looking at the 1st of January next year and thinking, oh my God, Brexit's coming? So, and this might sound the obvious answer, but the main challenge is their size. So, you know, if you compare a small business to a large firm, you're looking quite often at a, a business that has you know, fewer human resources, um, few, less time to throw at the conundrum that is preparing for the end of transition. Um, and quite often you're looking at a business that has um, a lower cash flow and lower cash reserves than a large firm. Um, and the other key thing, if you compare a small firm to a large firm, is that depending on, depending on the size of the firm, very often you're not talking about a business, a small business that has a you know, a legal department or an export yeah. department. Maybe yeah. if they're lucky, they've got one person doing this. Whereas, you know, you know I, I thought that. I, they have all that. 
you know, they, they in all different respects, piece of regulation comes in, piece of bureaucracy comes in, and the big business just throws it off to the department and says, get on with that. They, the woman or the man who get it in a small business, they were the finance director this morning, they're the office cleaner tonight, and they've got to deal mm. with this in the afternoon. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, they're the ones staying up, burning the bin, not oil, oil trying to understand these things. Do you think they're ready? Or do you think they've got their head in the sand? I don't think it's a case of head in the sand, but it's definitely a mixed picture. So from our own research um, at FSB, we know that about a third of businesses feel that they're prepared um, for what's coming. Um, and then there's a further third that are kind of they're, they're still in the process of making adjustments, getting ready, uh, but they're not quite there yet. But then there's a further third uh, on top of that who either they, they don't know if they're ready um, or they're really concerned that they're not going to be ready come the end of the year. So it's a, it's a real mixed bag. And for those, for those, that last third, which are a lot of businesses, um, what should they be thinking about? What key areas would you point them to now and say, oi, one, two, three, get on with this? Well, obviously, it depends on the, the type of business. And as you know, FSB is a, a cross-sectoral organization both goods services everything in between um but the main message that we've been putting out there is that obviously there's you know we're, we're talking about a no deal or a deal but there are things that you can do right now that will be relevant whatever the scenario come the end of the year so you know if you're in goods um exporting uh, things like registering for an aori number or contracting the services of a, um, a logistics um, intermediary this kind of thing um, so there are things that you can be doing right now yeah, regardless, actually, that size or, or uh, proximity of January the 1st is no excuse for that, is it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, James, uh, I'll obviously um, be back to you in a little while because we're, uh, we're going to head off now up to the Outer Hebrides. Chile, just as I say it, it's a place I've been to uh, and it's absolutely wonderful. And it's the home of Harris Tweed. And uh, Pat and I were very lucky to go and look around their museum. Uh, last summer uh, the one <laughs> pre-covid summer and uh, oh it was so impressive so here is a small business right on the edge of the uk right in the northwest of scotland and a very special small business it is i'm joined now by its chairman and that's brian wilson of harris tweed brian hello and uh, how's it in uh, northwest scotland right now hey well where i'm sitting on a clear day I could see some cold out, but it's certainly not a clear day, so I'm afraid it's a wild and stormy day. In fact, I think you might say it's a good Harris Tweed day. Um, <laughs> you, you're going to sell it on need. You'll sell it on need today, I should think. That's true. You, you, uh, There you are, right on the uh, extremity of Europe. And on January the 1st, your uh, big export market's going to change in the way you get in, what you do and how you do it. So... Tell me firstly, give me a flavour for the sort of way in which you make it right now. Well, Harris Tweeds uh, is a very unique uh, fabric. It's the only fabric in the world governed by its own uh, Act of Parliament, the 1993 Harris Tweed Act at Westminster, which defines not only how it's made, um, which is from pure virgin wool, um, but also very precisely where it's made, which is at the home of the weaver, where it's woven at the home of the weaver uh, in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. And unless it's uh, made in that way and, and to a very precise uh, procedure, um, then it cannot be stamped and authenticated by, uh, by the Harris Tweed Authority. And the, the, the stamp 
uh, the orb trademark is the oldest British trademark in continuous use. So it's got a, a great, it's got a narrative that others would uh, would die for. But uh, the great thing for us is that it's all true. And is the uh, th- th- those those home weavers? Uh, they produce it and and then bring it into a central point, do they? Yeah, the the early stages of the process are in in our mill at Shawbuston on Isle of Lewis. Uh, it then yeah. goes out the home of the weaver to be woven, and then it comes back to the mill to be finished, stamped, and dispatched to the four corners of the earth. And how many weavers do you have on that basis? There's about a, about 150 uh, home weavers. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So I always say it's a kind of classic inverted triangle because you have you know Harris Tweed the brand is very well known around the world but you know at at the bottom of that uh, inverted triangle you have a very small base of people on whom the whole the whole thing depends. I remember in Stornoway when uh, Pat and I were there and and you have your museum there and you have the trademark and and all of that but there were so many photographs of these uh, individual home base weavers uh, producing this wonderful product that goes absolutely everywhere around the world and so that brings us to the first of january they'll keep making it uh you'll keep trying to sell it but how's life going to change for you well i think the greatest uh, uncertainty is the uncertainty i mean if we knew what was happening it would help um the, about 20 percent of our production goes to uh, the continuing eu countries um, in, in volume, it's important, but it's also very important because you know we sell to the you know the leading fashion houses of um, Paris and Milan. That's very important for the cachet of the fabric, but the, the volumes aren't necessarily uh, very great. But you know that it sets the standard and, and maintains Harris Tweed's place really as a, as the, the fabric of fashion and the fabric of quality. So the European market is very uh, important. And the 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 most um, immediate threat, if, if there is a no deal, is that we, we would face a tariff of I think it's seven eight percent something like that, and that would have to be absorbed into uh, the costs. You know, because of the process, we're already a little bit more expensive than than some uh, other fabrics. You know, you can't go back and say, look, we're adding on. Uh, you know, almost 10 percent to the to the cost uh, because we are being charged that so hopefully life would go on fairly much as normal if uh, there is a deal and if there is the avoidance of tariffs but uh, the, the the existence of tariffs would be extremely unwelcome and they, and in the middle of that you're looking therefore at a an, an increase in your overhead for want of a better word of about uh, seven seven point five eight percent to protect tariffs are all about protection so this would be the european union trying to protect itself against you when no one else on earth makes what you make i mean there's a degree of hypocrisy in all of that but you've got to get it to milan and and you've got to get it through the borders whether you pay a tariff or whether you don't because of a deal presumably you how, how do you do it you put it on a truck and get it through the channel tunnel do you well, essentially, well, we, you know, we are because of where we are, we are dependent on a network of uh, of, of hauliers uh, and shippers who who take it to its its end uh, end destinations. Um, the more we can simplify that, the better. And obviously, the less bureaucracy there is, the the the, the better. Uh, you know, we are we are not a big um, company, but we've got people who are very expert in the logistics of, of shipping Harris Tweed uh, all all over the world. Um, but the last thing you want is a, a, a other layers of form filling. So you know, I mean, my 
you, you know, I, I didn't wish Brexit wasn't happening, but I've long since reconciled myself to the fact that it is a. And all, all we want now is things to be as near as possible to to, to what they are at present. In which case, we can t- continue to trade um, to trade normally. After January the first, if we can carry on trading normally, or if we have the tariff but you absorb it, the the European market continues to be so important for you. Yeah, it's very important for both. In both in terms of volume, because about twenty percent of what we produce goes there, but particularly because of some of the markets that it goes to, which really are the uh, the, the uh, critical to the to, to the world of, of fashion, which we depend on to a significant extent. That- I mean, normally in normal circumstances, there are the the, the show around which the whole season depends for the for the fabric yeah. industry generally, but is in in Paris in September, you know. So you've got to be able to go there and. Essentially, it works well just now, and let's just hope it works well in the future. Yeah, and and are you having to reorganise anything because of January the first, or is it steady as she goes? I mean, are you having to take big reorganisations into account or not? No, we, we don't. I mean, it, it, we're we're if there were things to be done, if there were things obvious things you could do, then we might do them. But you know, where we are particularly, um, and we're we're only a small uh, industry, then then it. We, we really are dependent on the actions of others, and as I say, if the if if the tariff problem would go away, uh, then hopefully we would uh, we, we wouldn't see that that, that much difference. Well, Brian Wilson, uh, Chairman of Harris Tweed, thank you for giving me your time and and good luck. It's a fabulous fabulous UK brand. Thank you very much. Yeah, you just keep saying that, and it'll be very very welcome. Thanks a lot. Nice to talk to you, Dick. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, Brian. Bye bye. Well, James. There's a, a bit of a worry from Brian there about, well, if you only told me what it is I've got to get worried about, I'd get worried about it. Um, what, what, they're out of his control, aren't they? Whether it's going to be absorption of 7.5% tariff, whether it's going to be changing his trucking routine, they're out of his control. So how, how, what can he mitigate in that respect? What can he do? So I think his experience does actually reflect a lot of small businesses. So you're, you're right, there's a lot that is out of his control. There's a lot that you can't, you know, be 100% prepared for right now. Tariffs is a good example. Um, But it sounds like they're doing the right thing. So it sounds like they've got staff on board who have all the experience and expertise that they need to deal with things like customs paperwork and so on. So they hopefully will be in a good position because of that. Um, The other thing that's interesting is that as a company, they have experience of, you know, shipping their, their products outside of the EU as well. And that's reflective of a lot of other small businesses experience they do have that kind of that knowledge that hopefully will transfer to the you know post first of january future um but you know there, there, there are lots of things out of their control so you know um tariffs it sounds like if there's a deal um they'd be in a position to to meet the kind of origin thresholds and they qualify for the zero tariff which is which is really good um but then when it comes to things like logistics you know we don't really know what january is going to look at look like we expect some disruption but how much we're not sure. In terms of the uh, the origin issue, when you say that they can meet mm. it, uh, what uh, I, I understand origin, but what do you mean by meet it? So, in a you know a theoretical deal between the UK and the EU, um, we're talking about a zero tariff, zero quota deal, right? Um, but to qualify for that um, that that zero tariff, you need to prove that your product is um, of the origin threshold. So it's basically a UK product. And it, it from just from the sounds of things from their production process, you know, they're relying on 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 on, on wool that's you know um, made in Scotland, 
Um, So what you're talking about is the stuff that goes in it is the stuff that goes in it has to originate, and the action has to originate. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. You're listening to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. Next, we're travelling down south. We're leaving the Outer Hebrides and we're heading right the way down to the northern home counties, to Aylesbury. And we're going to meet an entrepreneur who saw a gap in the market, identified it and went for it and filled it. Uh, She's Sophie Burkett. She runs her own company called Screen with Envy. And she joins me from her warehouse, which no better place than uh, you can smell it, taste it and understand how you're making money. Sophie, good of you to give me some time. Hello. Oh, hi. Thank you so much for having me. So you, you set the company up yourself, what, three years ago. What is it exactly you make? What is it? Well, we make really, really attractive privacy screens. They're normally used in people's gardens but they can also be used in the home, restaurants. We do a lot of things connected to COVID now. So we do uh, kind of protective screens for nail salons, restaurants, this type of stuff. And how did all that come about? It actually ties into Brexit. So I was actually a stay-at-home mum for three years, loving my life, everything was great. Um, there was a lot of kind of turmoil, as you know, kind of during the Brexit announcement and stuff like that. And at that time, my husband lost his job. Um, uh. And it was one of those things where I'd had this idea and I'd love these products and I use them at my house. And I thought, you know what, this is my chance to kind of launch it and see if there's other people out there who might have the same problems that I have. Um, and it seems that there are. <laughs> and and where do you make them? Well, we make them actually in three different locations. So it kind of depends on the product range. So we either make them in Aylesbury or we make them in factories in Bulgaria or we make them in China. So it depends really on exactly the product type. And so some of the questions I had today was kind of linked into that because at the moment we sell to European clients um, and really clients all over the world in certain ways, but obviously issues around kind of countries of origin and stuff like that. Yeah, so f- forgive my simplicity because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to get my, my guru who's sitting alongside me here to uh, do that. James, <laughs> James, you've just had your, no, your warning, your, your 10 second warning. Um, but I, my simplicity would be that it is possible as a scenario where you're having something made in Bulgaria, which is in the European Union, and yeah. you, you bring it in to Aylesbury and you sell it. So mm-hmm. you're an importer of something and you've got to get through a border which changes uh, on the 1st of mm. January. Then you're yeah. making something in Aylesbury and you're selling it to, let's pick it, I don't know, Barcelona. There you go. And therefore exactly. you've got to get it. You've got to get through the border the other way. Now, mm-hmm. um, you, you, you've got James. He's the head of international affairs at the FSB. Ask away, Sophie. Ask Amazing. away. <laughs> I suppose some of my issues are kind of really basic is around like we sell products that might be made in a number of different locations so a good example is like a fence we might make the 80% of that fence in our factory in Bulgaria but then the really attractive beautiful bits at the top that it cut for a custom client you know custom design we would cut that in Aylesbury um, and mm. so the end product might actually be coming from three different locations. But the, for the end client who we're selling to, who might be in the Netherlands, it's effectively one product. Yeah. So the way it works. So obviously rules of origin is, is, is very complicated, but essentially you're looking at is the value. So the added value. Um, so, mm-hmm. for instance, you could import part of the, the finished product from China, but then finish it in the UK uh, or mm. even in Bulgaria. And if that 
value is over the, the threshold that will be will hopefully will be in the uh, trade agreement from the UK and the EU, which is normally mm. just over fifty percent value. Um, it should yeah. qualify, um, but it's very complicated. And the best thing I can recommend actually is if you work with um, a, an intermediary. So it could be someone like the Chambers of Commerce who do things like uh, certificates of origin um, mm. or another provider. Uh, they're usually the best people who can kind of hold your hand through the process. Um, mm-hmm. That would be my advice. And James, when you just said to Sophie, uh, it should work, you mean on that basis with that certificate, she wouldn't be end up after January 1st paying any more duty? Is that what you mean by it should work? Well, it depends on obviously the, the values involved and the, and the product. Um, I mean, if you have a, a product that is made, um, you know, in your Bulgarian factory or your UK factory, the way it will work um, is if if your um, uh, product qualifies under the origin threshold, you should qualify for the the zero duty. Um, it gets yeah. a bit more complicated when it involves China, but you know it will depend on the actual product itself. Yeah, and I, and and Sophie, I guess that if the Bulgarian ambassador is listening to this, and I'm sure he is, um, I'm I'm sure they make they they make the nice little bits in Bulgaria as well as just the ordinary bits. Yes, Sophie, when you um, knew mm-hmm. Brexit was coming down the pipe. Um, mm-hmm. Did you feel did you feel alone and bereft, or did you think I can get lots of help? I mean, I'm just interested. You in... know what? Like, I to be totally frank with you, and I'm literally the last person to blow my own horn. But I started the business three years ago with three kids under four at home and no childcare. So I'm literally not the type of person to kind of be like, oh dear, I'm bereft. What am I going to do? Um, so I just cracked on, really. So we kind of had to make a really clear decision whether we would integrate further into the EU and try to get more business there or whether we try to slow down really advertising and finding clients in the EU and focus more on the UK. Um, We, you know, had kind of some discussions and stuff like that and we decided to be bold. Um, So basically we're going to open up a distribution centre and a warehouse in the Netherlands, ideally before the end of the year. Um, And so in a way, there's been no assistance whatsoever, but it's forced us to be bold and it's forced us to be closer to our European clients. So in a way, I'm actually really excited about the future. Um, We'll learn about all this stuff as we go, but we are where we are. Yeah, no, I get that. And the distribution centre will take its product before distribution around Europe from Aylesbury or direct from Bulgaria or China? No, so we will take it the first round. We'll probably just put on tracks and send from Aylesbury before that cutoff of Jan 1st, when it's going to be more simple. Um, probably in you know peak period, we're going to have to look at how, you know what's the most optimum way of filling that warehouse and stuff like that. We'll probably have some cutting machines in Venlo, just so that we can provide that high-end yeah. service that we do in yeah. the UK. Um, but yeah, and so you woke up. You woke, you woke up one morning and decided to be bold and decided to go for it. Um, yeah, why, 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 why Holland? And, and, and also, how did mm. you find the place? I mean, how did you go? Did you go off and go and get some estate agents' particulars, or what did you do? I got in my car after I worked for like nine hours, and I drove all the way to Venlo to go and look at it, and then I got back in my car and drove all the way back. And why Venlo? it's just such a good logistics location i mean when you Uh arrive there it's uncanny so for the first hour when you're kind of approaching Uh it you don't actually see other cars you basically only see trucks containers and warehouses Uh and so you get this sense that you're entering like a major logistics hotspot for europe so 
for us, that's exciting. It's incredible. And, and you drove um, around Venlo till you found an empty warehouse, did you? No, I actually just found the warehouse from the UK. Um, oh, on the, online? You went online? and Yeah, literally online. And then I thought, you know what? You need to go and see it because there might be some crazy uh, neighbor next door. You never actually uh, know a warehouse until you're like right in front of it. Um, uh, but no, it's a great, great location. So there's a, quite a bit of self-help in this. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Sophie, I'll, uh, uh, I've still got my guru here. So uh, mm-hmm. what, other, what, what else would you like to ask him? Because he's not actually oh God, cheap everything. today. He's free. <laughs> I'm excited. All right. So the main one I wanted to ask is that basically for issues around like clearing customs and stuff like that within the EU, my basic understanding is that I'm better to set up an EU subsidiary rather than an EU branch office. I've looked at the kind of information around that and it seems like it's probably more advantageous to create an EU subsidiary versus an EU branch office for legals of like legal separation and stuff like that. Um, that's, the, that's the path that we'll probably take, but it's just kind of interesting to hear from you if that would be correct or what your thoughts would be. Yeah, so there are lots of benefits to having a subsidiary. So for things like uh, VAT, it can make it a lot lot simpler if you have mm-hmm. an EU subsidiary. And it's also the case that if you are selling any products that are that require to have an authorised representative in the, in the EU, then a subsidiary can fulfil that role. So there are all sorts of benefits to it. I think a bit of advice I'd say if you're looking at setting up a subsidiary is to perhaps make contact with, in this case, the, the Netherlands Enterprise Agency, because they exist to help companies like yourself uh, set yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, the, the subsidiary the is country. basically set up already. Um, we had no time to waste, but I, to, I was more to hear, do you think this is the right thing to do? So branch office versus subsidiary, it kind of comes down to your company. And um, from the mm. sounds of things for your company, from what you're saying, the subsidiary sounds quite sensible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've also spoken to other FSB members uh, for instance, in services for whom a subsidiary yeah. makes sense. Um, so mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a real option, definitely. Okay, cool. Um, I suppose our concern was we've heard all these fear stories that was like, oh, from January the 1st, you won't be able to sell and dispatch to European clients from the UK without having this physical presence there. Um, and in a way, this has pushed us to open up an operation that we, we probably should have done it a while ago because it, it makes it so much better for us to be closer to our clients there. Um, but yeah, no, it's really interesting to hear. That's great. And Sophie, I, I wish you all, not only just all the best, but the best that you deserve. And, and you know, Napoleon called us a nation of shopkeepers. He didn't mean retail. He didn't mean retail. He, he meant small businesses. He did. He meant small businesses and a it's force wonderful. to be reckoned with. And there you go, off conquering Europe. I, I'm, I'm really proud of you. And uh, thank so you for giving me you so from much. your really warehouse today. Thank you for joining me. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Preparing for Brexit with Digby Jones here on Times Radio. We're now going back up north. We're, we're staying in England, but in the very, very tip of England, on the northeast, north of Newcastle. And we're going to Cramlington. And uh, this is a company that makes furniture, but not, shall we say, the low end of the market. It's a company called George Smith. And it's uh, the sort of stuff which, if you've ever been in a nightclub or in a posh hotel in reception, and you've looked at those amazing chairs and you've thought to yourself oh i just love to go and lose myself in one of those well some of it will have come from the northeast of england and to tell us a little bit about george smith here is jim athy jim good afternoon to you good afternoon tell me a bit about yourself was i right you're the operations manager there so you you know all about where it's going and how's it doing was i right in saying that it's reaches the nightclubs and hotels of around the world Absolutely. We're supplying 4,000 pieces of upholstered furniture into high-end residential and, and hospitality projects every year. So we're, we're selling globally. We have showrooms in London, New York, Chicago, um, also in Los Angeles. And we have a, a network of distributors throughout the US and EU. So it's a, a global business, but it's all centered in Northumberland, where we employ 100 craftsmen and women. Uh, in a factory um, here in the northeast. Oh, well done. Have you been focusing at all on the end of transition on the 1st of January next year? Absolutely. Um, you know, as I said, we're a global operation, so we're, we're well hooked in to the, to the EU and around the world, and 33% of what we, we produce is exported. Half of that goes to the EU. Um, so it's been, Brexit has been a, a big thing on our agenda. Yeah. And what special things have you been doing? If, if I wanted to pick out and say, look, that's what they were doing and wasn't that a good thing? What, what do you look at and think, yeah, I've got myself ready in that respect? So for us, there's, there's two sides of, of, of Brexit. There's the sales side. Fortunately, we're experienced global exporters. So we're familiar with the export documentation. We have good relationships with great forwarders. Um, we operate, as I said, through distributors. So it, this is an advantage to us because... We're in a good place. We know who we're talking to. Um, so we've organised economic operator numbers and we have plans in place with them around duty and customs documentation. The flip side of it is on bringing materials in. So we use the finest materials you can find. And whilst much of that comes from some excellent businesses here in the UK, the supply chains extend into the EU and around the world. So to protect our customers, we have put in place additional stock 
And we have the means to do this. But I, I do feel for some businesses who might not have the cash or the storage space to do that. And and what one thing in your uh, obvious, honest look at it all, which you, you clearly are a plain speaker. So what one thing do you wish you'd done a bit more of or do you wish had been done better in the last few months in connection with Brexit? We're a highly bespoke manufacturer. You know, our clients can tailor the size, the finish, the configuration of their furniture, or even commission something which is entirely unique. But one of the most common customizations is the fabric. And this is my small area of concern. Um, on our search for the best of the best, it means we source fabrics from around the world. And much of that comes from France, Belgium, Italy, and the Netherlands. Um, unfortunately, we, we, whilst we work with some great some suppliers, for example, we have a, this great guy in Europe who sources some incredible leathers. The hides come in from Germany, they're tanned in Italy and then they're shipped over to us. Um, but it's this last step, getting it to us, which is the, the concern. You know, we, we appreciate that the, we've got to prioritise medical supplies, and we're hearing that there's some schemes are in place for components going into the car manufacturing industries and the like. But many goods, like fabric, that go into labour-intensive businesses such as ours um, could potentially be delayed. You know, we've got 17 million jobs in, in small and medium enterprises, and many of those uh, could be at risk if these supply chains aren't kept moving. Um, we're hearing that ports are going to be a, a potential bottleneck, and with all of these other items being prioritised, we could well be at the back of that queue. Yeah, and, and by the back of the queue, you mean genuinely the truck coming in last onto the, onto the cross-channel, whatever it may be. Exactly. And, and, and this is, you know, you mentioned that the channel and, and straight away that's the focus. The entire country seems to be talking about Dover and the South Coast. But meanwhile, we have some great ports in the northeast here. You know, we've got Teesport, Port of Time, and very locally to us, we've got Wine. These are facilities that could be key to ensuring goods keep moving. And are you planning to use those ports in the northeast? We will if we get the opportunity to do so. Um, but things need to be put in place to support them, them ports to be to be used. Yeah, and that's that is both the businesses saying we want to, and it's government providing the incentive, be it a free port or infrastructure improvement or whatever it may be. Exactly. Only a few weeks now to uh, to the end of transition. Is there anything you've left to be done yet? Have you got a stone unturned? I've heard what you've been doing, but is there anything that you've, you've got, you know you need to do in the next few weeks? No, you know, we're in a very strong position. We've got, we've got stocks in place to support us. Um, we've, done a, we've, we've known about this for a long time. You know, we did this, this preparation last year. It's, it's almost like a comfortable pair of shoes now. You know, we've, we've got a plan, <laughs> we've run it. Uh, we had a nice drive on. And now we're doing it again, and, um, and we're in a good place. Does that mean that you've got 43 warehouses full of horsehair? We've got more than you would, uh, you would imagine. And our <laughs> horsehair and lots of the, the things I'm going to furniture tend to be quite bulky, so, so storage <laughs> is, um, is a challenge. And it's tying up your cash in stockpiling, but it'll be worth its while, really will be worthwhile doing it if it means that you keep your customers happy, won't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Our customers, you know, as you would expect, uh, you know, fairly un unforgiving when it comes to, to delays or any issues. So we have to be yeah. positioning ourselves to, to protect them. Yeah. Well, Jim, thank you very much indeed. Th thank you for your time. Um, I wish you well. Uh, it's an area of uh, Britain I've been up many times and visited loads of businesses. Uh, 
I did uh, one of my uh, troubleshooter programs from uh, Bishop's Auckland. So it's uh, an area I know well, and uh, I'm I'm just thrilled to bits that you you're a global excellent business, and I wish you well on January the first, my friend. Thank you very much. Well, still with me here on preparing for Brexit with Digby Jones is James Sibley, head of international affairs at the FSB. Uh, you've, you've now listened to three different businesses, James, in three different parts of Britain, three different sectors. Any any threads that you can say are similar or anything that fills you with alarm? I think the thing I'd say first off is that you've got three businesses who, you know, they're, they're clearly doing the right thing, which is they're, you know, they're thinking about the changes ahead and they're, they're making adjustments when they can. Um, I mean, even the last business, you know, you can't, really control uh you know the the disruption potentially at european ports shipping goods to the uk but it sounds like he's doing everything right he's you know he's thinking about alternative ports to to dover uh, you know he's working with his suppliers these are all really good things to be doing um so no, i've been really impressed listening to each of the business owners talk about their experience and have you got anything that you would say that has been alarmingly missing in any of them or you think they're they're going to be okay well, the thing that comes through is the thing that comes through in, in each of my conversations with, with, with businesses on this topic, which is, you know, the uncertainty element. Um, and that's the thing that is hard to plan for. So, you know, are there going to be tariffs? And if so, what do we need to do? Um, you know, what's the, the border situation actually going to be like come January and, and beyond? Um, and that's less alarming. It's kind of a, you know, it's a message I've heard repeatedly now. And unfortunately, uh, the answer is you can you can do what you can to prepare and then the rest it will it will, will depend on what, what comes down the line. And one thing, James, that's come through for me is that so many of these people get up and go. You know, they see the obstacle, they get up and go and deal with it. And whether it's the time capacity or the money capacity, they seem to be on path for getting on with it and getting around the obstacles. Is that normal in your 200,000 members? I mean, is that a characteristic of a small business or have we just lighted on unusual businesses so i think a common characteristic of small businesses that you know they are they are nimble um and fundamentally they are optimists you know you don't go into business if you're not optimistic about your chances so um in that sense they are pretty pretty representative um i think the one thing um the kind of businesses i encounter who you know perhaps they're uncertain or um they're not quite finished their preparations is perhaps exporting is less of a feature of their their business it's still a feature but in terms of volume perhaps it's a bit lower um and for them it's a a, you know they're they're thinking uh, about what do they need to do what's worth my time um and obviously the other thing that's behind the backgrounding all of this is covid that we've not not touched on so much um you know covid's had a tremendous impact on many firms both in terms of cash flow and cash reserves um, and that's made it really tricky if you've got businesses that are trying to survive till the end of the year. Um, making preparations for the end of transition on top of that is is, is quite tricky. Yeah. Interestingly, I was impressed by the fact that uh, their spirit, their wish to go and do it and get over it and make the most of it transcended everything. It transcended the location of the business. It transcended, the, uh, transcended what they did how they did it. it it was very much a broad characteristic and as you just said i think you know they're they're nimble they're light on their feet they can do it but on the other hand uh, they don't have capacity of people or money and resources in the same way as big businesses do they exactly and but these are things that can be overcome 
uh, by things like working with your suppliers, working with your logistics partner. And by the sounds of things, the three companies that you've spoken to are, are, are doing exactly that. So um, even if you are limited in resource, there are still things you can do. Um, yeah. And it's great to see that they're doing it. And and also your 200,000 members, perhaps some of them are listening and thinking, yeah, we can do it too. So that'll be good. James, just to say thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your time. And uh, here's to a successful tran- end of transition. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to Preparing for Brexit with Digby Jones here on Times Radio. Now, what happens if you're not even someone who employs 45 people, which would be a small business? You're not even someone who employs 20 people. You're not even somebody who employs 15. You actually employ just a few just four or five, say, what we would call a micro business. To help me understand where the issues are so different, I want to introduce to you Emma Jones. No relation, by the way. She's from an organisation that she runs called Enterprise Nation. Emma, hello. Hello there, Digby. Just tell me about you, the sort of member of your organisation, the sort of business. What would it be? Uh, well, they are the small businesses to which you were just referring, um, even though I have to say one comment I always make about our members is they may be small, but they're very mighty. So it is micro entrepreneurs, naught to 10 employees in terms of the size of their business. And in terms of what they do, they're selling everything from food and drink to fashion, but also to business services. Many start and grow from home. They are exporting and they try and be as efficient, efficient as possible in their operations. <laughs> and, and just so I can get a handle on the, the characteristic of what you do, are you more banging the drum on their behalf, what I would call a, a trade association, lobbying and fighting? Or are you an advisory service where you actually give them advice and point them in the direction? Or are you both? We do both. So, yes, businesses come to us with lots of questions on their mind. And, of course, we've been very busy in the past seven months. So businesses have wanted to know how to build websites, how to manage cash flow, how to keep on exporting. Because we're in contact with so many small businesses, we understand what's on their mind. We understand their trade challenges and therefore we represent those views to government and to others in society at large. Yeah, and uh, there's no there's no prize for understanding what's been foremost on their mind. I should think it's survival through the past seven months of COVID. So do you see the next few weeks as bringing Brexit up to number one on the attention graph or, or not? Are they just going to deal with it on January the 2nd? Yeah, there is an element of uh, businesses will deal with it at the time. This happened with GDPR. We saw this happen when GDPR came into effect. Many businesses dealt with it on the day itself. But the one thing, Digby, which has been fascinating for us to see over these past few months is business owners have really put things in perspective and they feel incredibly resilient at the moment they have a strength of mind which essentially is taking the approach that if i can deal with covid my business can deal with anything and therefore they're possibly looking upon first of january in a slightly more 
I'm not going to say positive way, but I'm going to say in a way where they feel stronger to be able to take anything on. So if they're on new tariffs, if there's new customs documentation, if they need to sort out how their data flows in and out of Europe, then they feel right. I've just been through a harsh seven months. I can deal with it when it comes. Um Emma, we're, uh, we're, we're going to uh, bring into our conversation uh, a micro business. Uh, it's owned by a lady called Jackie Ma in the trendy part of East London. And it makes and sells the panniers for cycles. And of course, bicycles have become the mode of transport, the preferred one and especially so in cities and especially so since the pandemic got hold. Jackie, hello. Hi there, Digby. Hi, thanks for joining me. Um, You set up your own company. When did you do that? Um, I set it up in 2012. Oh, yeah. And it's an office above a garage, isn't it? Yeah, it started off on top of of a bike shop where I live. The, The bicycle pannier market was just quite sort of boring and drab and, and the bags that I design are sort of colourful and aimed at women and families and things like that. And so how did you go about finding your pannier to sell to people? Uh, well, my background is in design. So I design the bags and get them made in China and then sell them wholesale and direct to the customer. And, and do any of your customers, are they in the European Union? Yeah, about 10% of my customers are through... The EU, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so so you get things in from China. You add, you design them. The added value mm-hmm. bit is with you, and then mm-hmm. you're selling them out of Britain and into the European Union. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Tell me, what's your business called, Jackie? It's called Good Ordering in one word. So it's like when you go out to a restaurant and you order well. <laughs> so you're happy with how, your ordering. And how did you? Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> Uh, my background is, is Chinese and, you know, we always went out to big meals where everyone shares. So my mum would always order for everyone. So the whole idea is that the brand is all about family and sharing and, um, you know, getting together. And Well, you, you, you've got Emma Jones with me and uh, <laughs> she is quite experienced in um, getting micro businesses ready for how the board is going to change on the 1st of January. Is there anything you'd like to ask her? Yeah, I mean, I have a huge amount of questions, Emma. <laughs> and like you said, I'm probably one of those businesses who will, you know, kind of deal with all of the transition on the 2nd of January. And I've been really focused on survival as well. But I guess things like questions to do with boring things like VAT and um, just import tax and things like that into Europe is are things that I don't know. Yeah, well, Jackie, it's it's lovely to hear you. That is an interesting one, actually. So from the 1st of January, for VAT purposes, the UK becomes what's called a third country. And therefore, that means any sales of products outside of the UK into the EU will be zero rated. So it means you apply no VAT when you're selling it. However, depending on the deals you have with your customers, it may mean you have to become that registered in the EU country into which you're selling. Now, I appreciate that for companies such as yours, you could be looking at registering for VAT in 27 EU states, which is probably a little bit too big a burden. Yeah, I don't think I would go down that path. I mean, just from a, you talked about efficiency um, before, and I think with small companies like mine, the whole idea is just to keep the amount of paperwork as simple as possible. 
I think there will be, this is where I'm, entrepreneurial people in other EU states, I think, will rise up because one other option for small businesses is to appoint what's called a financial representative. So rather than you registering for VAT, you you have someone who acts on your behalf. And I do think what we'll see following January's you know, kind of new new deal, new rules, I think we will see new entrepreneurial models in EU states that hopefully will give you that efficiency to keep trading mm-hmm. where you don't have to have the friction that comes with it. Ja- Jackie, I understand that you, 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 you've identified France as a possibly good market for you. Um, is there is there is there anything Emma that the, the, from right now? Oh, I think France is a good market. What she should be doing next? If Jackie was to be looking at the French market, of course you want to do market research just as you would. But I would say also look for local partners. Many businesses yeah. are considering maybe setting up a company outfit in the EU, so at least they have a presence. But mm-hmm. I think local partnerships will become even more important because British businesses will be reliant on local partners on the ground. This this is a question to both of you actually, because I'm I'm interested with a micro business as to the as to the, the problem with this. HMRC uh, sent this admonishing letter, I would guess would be a good way of putting it, saying to hundreds of thousands of businesses, come on, get yourself sorted you need to do this. Are you ready? Um, I think it only came from the tax man because they've got more details of how to reach all the businesses than anybody else, I guess. I don't think there's any connotation of tax or VAT or, 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 or duty in it. But it's more about get yourself ready. Um, did you have one of those letters, Jackie? Yeah, I have a pile of letters about Brexit that I just sort of have filed away with all the other letters. Oh, <laughs> so that's, that's really constructive, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's not the plan that's not what you're meant to do <laughs> you're meant to open it read it inwardly digest it and deal with it so what yeah, you're going to do it you're going to do with... of them and send them to my accountant but um yeah you're going to yeah. deal with it on january the second are you yeah i mean I, I have partners that are trusted and they've done their homework so my shipping company and my accountant and you know lawyers things like that so i'm confident yeah. it will be yeah. okay but there's not really that much that i can personally do yeah and, and in fact that's a lesson isn't it get yourself well partnered get yourself well advised get people you can depend on yeah i, I get that and emma mm-hmm. do you think do you think jack is one of millions like that or do you think she's unusual no, I think Jackie is one of millions and we weren't hugely happy with the tone of that campaign, Digby. It, as you say, it was admonishing small businesses, telling them they're running out of time, which I thought was a little bit rich when we've been asking government for the past three years to bring out a support programme to help businesses get ready for Brexit. So, yes, yeah. businesses have had lots on their mind this year and I didn't think that was quite the right approach to take. At the start of this programme, you know, I was I was asking uh, Brian Wilson up in uh, Harris Tweed up in the Hebrides, uh, is, is he ready? And he, my words, not his, but he basically said, if you tell me what I've got to get ready for, I'll go and get ready. Mm. And uh, I, I, I thought, yeah, good point. Very good point. While we've got Emma here, Jackie, is there anything else you'd like to quiz her on? Um, I guess I just wonder about sort of individual consumers and also retailers. How that might, how you think that might change after the first of January, as in, what's the feel of 
how they'll look at UK companies. You know, have, have we kind of left their gang and they're not going to support us? Or do you think that they'll carry on buying from UK companies like mine? Yeah, I think this is very interesting. And a couple of reflections on this. We took a food and drink trade trip to Paris uh, once the EU once the UK decided to leave the EU. Mm. And we did say, will you stop buying from us? And actually, the response from the French market is, if you have products or services that we want, we'll keep on buying. So we'll mm. sort of put that political view to one side because customers still want what they want. However, we have since heard stories of retailers in Europe cancelling orders with UK companies However, on the upside, we've heard of American retailers swooping straight in and saying, well, actually, we'll place some orders because the politics of it don't matter Mm. so much to us. So I think, Jackie, and you are brilliant at doing this. Business owners will look and say, if the opportunity is no longer in that market, I will turn to where the opportunity is. And of course, we do have a trade secretary in the form of Liz Truss, who is tromping around the world at the moment, doing Mm. deals with Japan, with Korea, talking to New Zealand. And of course, we'll wait to see what happens with the US. So I would say if you're getting any sense in your market that European retailers are not too keen to buy from British suppliers, I would say rapidly turn your attention to other markets because anything that's made or designed in Britain still has good legacy. When I was trade minister and I got around, what was it, some 63 countries in a couple of years, and I, I, I just learned so much, but I did come to understand how valued the union flag on a product is. It, it sells. And, it, you know, we, we have our problems in the world, uh, arrogance and... And, and slow and all the rest of it and we wear our wash our dirty linen in public so so much compared with other countries but uh, they do like buying our stuff there's no doubt about it and and i think emma that's such good advice you know if you get a a country that's in europe saying yeah boo you know you're leaving us don't want you there will be many countries mm-hmm. in the world that'll say yep yeah, come on we'll have them we'll have them we we like yeah. you and uh, yeah. that's up to um, Jackie, I'd, I'd like to thank you. Thank you for your time. Good luck yeah, with the uh, good luck with the panniers. And um, I wish good ordering all the Bye, success Emma. in the world. Take care. Bye bye. Emma, I, I, I wanted to just um, ask you on behalf of everyone listening to this, but also, I guess, on behalf of the Jackies of this world and the Sophies and whatever, um, uh, if they're sitting there thinking, I've only got a few weeks to go. Do you know, I haven't done enough. And I know when I look in the mirror, I haven't done enough. Where can they go? What can they do? I mean, Jackie seemed quite happy on give it to my accountant, give it to my lawyer, give it to my partners. And by the way, that must be good advice. But for a lot of micro businesses, they don't have those sorts of people. So, So what can they do with just a few weeks to go? Where can they go to get this information? Yeah, well, the government has got a very good website, gov.uk forward slash transition where businesses can go as of today and you answer some questions and you can get access to a checklist of things you need to do but Digby as you say for businesses that want more of a support network so they want access to advisors indeed they want to talk to other businesses to say what are you doing then of course networks such as Enterprise Nation local growth hubs so economic development agencies in your own area These are the places where you'll find the support you need, practical advice, 
but also more psychological support to help you get through it. First of January, keep trading and beyond. I'd add one to that. I, I, I've always been a fan of the supply chain. And I, I always think that the, the person you're buying off and the person you're selling to, if you're selling not just on price, but the person you're selling to a value-added product and the person you're buying off, they have a vested interest in you doing okay. And and there's nothing wrong with a, a quick chat to one of the people you supply or one of the people who supply you and just say, uh, I need a bit of help here or what have you done? Can I learn from you? There's, a, there, there's no harm in that and being in it together. Uh, don't feel you don't feel you're on your own you, you know i think emma you're living proof that you've got together a load of micro businesses that are proved they're not on their own absolutely and it is so important and and do be quite often for businesses and this has certainly been the case this year they understood practically what they need to do but it has been that need for confidence and assurance from others that has kept them going so i think that is critically important yeah, I, I, I'm I'm going to say my goodbye to you, but I, I just want to say thank you personally for one of the things you said more than any other, which was this fact that your membership and indeed every every business, I guess, but every small business has come through the searing heat of a of a furnace of challenge that they've never, ever dreamt they'd have to face in the last seven months. And if they are still standing and they're standing with a viable business, they, uh, they will feel they can actually take on the world and win. Literally take on the world. As I said, Digby, they may be small, but they are very, very mighty. Yeah. And on that, uh, I'll say thank you to you. Emma Jones, Enterprise Nation, good to talk to you. Well, that brings me to the end of a look at small businesses. Thank you very much for listening. There are other programmes in this series. Uh, the last one, last uh, last week, we talked about manufacturing. You can still find that, by the way, on the Times Radio website if you'd like to have a listen, and I hope you will, because there's a continuity and a getting ready for this massive change on the 1st of January. And I'll be back uh, next time uh, with the next episode. Uh, I hope some good conversation. I hope some good counsel and some good advice. And so... For now, from Times Radio, from Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones. Bye-bye.